You're listening to We Can Do This, a podcast by the National Consumers League. We talk through the issues of today with the figures who have paved the way for social and economic reforms and those carrying on the fight for an equitable tomorrow. Your host for this episode is Sally Greenberg, Executive Director at the National Consumers League. Diana Ramirez is my guest today. She is Federal Senior Policy Advocate at the Restaurant Opportunity Center, also known as Rock, affectionately, where she works to advance one fair wage legislation and works both in the states and the federal government. Last year, she and her colleagues at Rock DC spearheaded an initiative, Initiative 77, which is very pertinent to us here in DC, to raise the tip minimum wage from its very sad low level, $3.89 an hour, to one fair wage. Diana now is with the National Women's Law Center, and you are a resident fellow under the inaugural fellowship program at the center. Thank you for having me. I got into this work because my sister was a restaurant worker, you know, in high school and college. And as a first generation Mexican American, my sister and I were first generations. My parents came here from Mexico. You know, we had to work through high school and we had to work through college. And I found, you know, very geeky job, nerdy jobs in an all-state insurance <laughs> company and work there, you know, pushing papers and calling people and giving them estimates. And my sister worked at restaurants and I saw firsthand what living off tips does to a young woman, to their perception of what is acceptable, to the perception of, you know, how how they can make money. And I, and I saw that growing up. And so when I moved away to college and came to Capitol Hill and then moved back home to continue doing policy work. And and throughout that time I just I never put two and two together. I never I never related my sister's experience with her upbringings in the restaurant industry. And what happens when when you live off tips is that, you know, as a young woman, you your majority of the income comes from tips. You're depending on customers' whims, essentially, for your take-home pay, because when you get paid as little as $2.13 an hour, as it is in Texas, you don't get a paycheck. It all goes back to taxes. And then you're just living off what customers want to give you. And so that's why I'm I'm in this line of work, and, and I started doing some labor advocacy work and then just kind of stuck with restaurant workers and and restaurant worker advocacy. Did you grow up in Texas? I did. Is that home? El Paso, Texas. Okay, there you go. And I was a waitress uh, three times, three different restaurants myself, and you really do have to be incredibly charming and competent and good at your job to earn much of anything. Suffice it to say, I wasn't very good at the job, so I I didn't earn much, but it is a really tough job, and it's mostly female. Right, correct. The restaurant business. Yeah, th- three, tell us about that. Yeah, two thirds of tipped restaurant workers are women. So when you have, a, when as a country, when we say we know that this sector of the workforce is majority women, but that's okay. You can pay them less and just have them make up the difference in tips. That's essentially legislated pay inequity. There's already a huge, you know, gender pay gap in this country. We'll add on to that, you know, the tip minimum wage. 
you know, unfortunately, tipped workers rely on food stamps at almost three times the rate as the rest of the U.S. workforce. They're people of color. And of course, tipping is still very racist and very sexist. And so, you know, when women have to put up with more inappropriate behavior to make that tip. Yeah. And it strikes me that we we probably not want to know more about tipping and the tipping habits of Americans. I was reading something the other day about uh, a guy who was delivering food for uh, for some of these, uh, you know, DoorDash and and Uber Eats. And he said only 47 percent. This is a guy. I don't know if it's different for women. Only 47 percent of the customers he had where he would, uh, you know, dash all over town to get bags of food and deliver them to uh, to various customers, 47% tipped. So that meant mm-hmm. that most of the time he didn't get any tips at all, which I'm sure is is uh, not unusual in the restaurant business as well. Yeah, tips are very unpredictable. It's very, it depends on the weather. It depends on, you know, how people's feeling that morning. It depends on people's, you know, inherent biases. And the law states that even when you don't make tips, you still the the employer is still supposed to make it up, but up to the minimum wage, whatever that is the in the wage. state or if it's right in the city, whatever the, the minimum city, wage right. is for that for that jurisdiction. What but actually happens? What actually happens is that they nobody keeps track of it because you know it gets even more murky. Not only do they have to, the tips are supposed to make up the difference, and so you have to keep track. But it's not on a shift to shift basis, it's on, it's the the average of the pay period. So if I go in, let's say I'm a single mom, I have to work the good shifts because that's when I get more tips. So I'm going to fight for the Friday and Saturday night shifts. Then I'm going to have to find daycare, nightcare for my kids with friends and family probably because there aren't any nighttime. There are very few and in some cities aren't any nighttime care providers. So I'm going to hustle. I'm going to get my kids with somebody. I'm going to go into work. And let's say it snows at night and we don't have any customers. And let's say, you know, I was born in this country. I speak the language. What if I didn't? What if I wasn't born in this? What if I was undocumented? What if I don't speak the language? But let's say you overcome all of that. Let's say you have the courage and go up to your boss and you say, boss, you owe me money today because I didn't make minimum wage. He's more likely to say, oh, Diana, don't worry. I'll just schedule you for the, the Saturday night shift and you'll make it up. So I'm subsidizing my own work. And no one's going to pay me back that time that I didn't spend with my kids on Friday. And I showed up. There just weren't any customers. And the employer gets to pay me $2.13 an hour, as little as. And so some people are living in that. Now, you said something important about about a pay stub. Pay stubs are important because then you know how many hours you worked and what you're actually getting paid for. I've heard from restaurant workers that many of them don't ever see a pay stub. They don't see a paycheck, right? So they they probably do get in some sort of electronic um, readout. Yeah, a readout. Of, but because it's not an actual That's check, shocking. because it's not an actual check, nobody is really waiting that Friday morning to get the check. Right, because it's so it's so There's small. Either no money goes, or so little money. Right, it all goes back to taxes. So you know, when a salaried employee knows that you know on this day every month you're going to get paid, well, restaurant workers don't, and so it doesn't matter if they get a pay stub or not. If they get something, if they get a physical printout, it'll say this is not a check, this is you know void, this is a pay stub, and 
you you know you just read how much money you paid to taxes. So yes, they you know the, the law states that employers have to give you a pay stub, but it's not important to them. So they probably don't know that they have digital access to this, and they probably don't care, right? Because they're just living off. It's not even paycheck to paycheck. It's shift to shift. These are shift to shift workers. And it's hard. How do you budget for your family when you don't know how much you're going to make every night? And so it's hard for for low income restaurant workers to even plan after school activities for their kids. It's hard to plan something, you know, more than a week or two in advance. So let's talk about what happened in DC in a minute but before we do that I want to I want to congratulate you on the win in the Thank House you. of Representatives yeah. the first time mm-hmm. in 10 years the US House of Representatives took up the minimum wage bill and voted uh, to support it you were instrumental in making that happen tell us about how that relates to our discussion on tips we passed the longest stretch in UN history without an increase in the minimum wage over 10 years. And what is the minimum wage now? $7.25 an hour is the federal minimum wage. And for tipped workers, it's two thirteen. Now, the two, the seven twenty five, you know, hasn't changed in seven years. The two thirteen hasn't changed in 28 years. And that's because of the money, power, and influence of a trade lobby called the National Restaurant Association, what we call the other NRA. The other NRA is one of the largest lobbying groups in Congress, and they have historically advocated against policies that benefit workers, whether it's health care, whether it's fair scheduling bills, sick days, of all the thing, of all the industries where you would want the workers to take off if they're sick. The restaurant industry spends so much money trying not to give their workers a sick day. Uh, go figure. Um, and minimum wage increases. And so the other NRA has been very successful. And, you know, as you would guess, they give a lot of donations to to these politicians. And it's, you know, it's the Disney company, it's the Yum Brands, it's the Darden Group, it's these big chains that claim to be speaking for the small businesses. And they don't. They don't. These are these are just And they're you know, pro- they're profitable. They could afford to pay a lot exactly. More they spend more hour. money working against pay increases than they would if they just paid their workers, right? So, so something interesting happened. First of all, you had a win. Uh, you had 231 members of the House of Representatives, a majority, supporting mm-hmm. the, the, the minimum wage the bill. bill. But also, I read that McDonald's has decided they're not going to fight the $15 minimum wage anymore. So they broke right. off. From the yeah, other NRA? McDonald's announced that they were no longer going to work against minimum wage increases. Um, and I think that's just because people are sick and tired of not making men's, ends meet, right? We, like I said, it's been the longest stretch in U.S. history. How do you justify that as an employer? How do you justify that as one of the main members of the National Restaurant Association and uh, one of the biggest chains? You just... You can't justify that. And, and no matter how much they tried, it just was counterproductive. And so they came out and said, we're just we're just going to stop fighting this. Do you think it's a trend in the industry? You know, I hope so. I think that it just depends. It, it's also no coincidence that the Democratic Party is in 
the majority in the House. And so I think, you know, had a had a the Republican Party been in majority in the majority, I don't know that they would have backed off. Honestly, um, I think it's just they see the political writing on the wall and they know that it's just not something that they're going to they're going to win. And so they just backed off. Now, the Republican Party still controls the Senate. And therefore, the Raise a Wage Act is not going into effect anytime soon. Um, there needs to be a change in power in the party, in the majority, in the Senate. And then, of course, the president has to sign it. And so I think that it, it, it's not a coincidence. And I hope that it's a trend because while we were advocating on Capitol Hill and talking to offices about the importance of this bill, um, we heard that other National Restaurant Association members would come in and they would say, okay, well, we know we need to raise a minimum wage. It's just not 15, right? Let's do 10. Let's do 12. But the, at least they're conceding on principle. And that something needs to that change. Something needs to change. How much do you earn if you uh, make $15 an hour? What's your annual wage? I think it's so, 28000 uh-huh. I think. I'm not sure. So oh, nobody, nobody's getting rich exactly. <laughs> on uh, $15 an hour. But it makes a big difference to families if they make two, three, four thousand dollars $4,000 more a year. Of course. Undoubtedly. Yeah. Yeah. The one fair wage in uh, D.C. measure that you were instrumental in getting adopted here was flipped by the D.C. City Council. Tell us about that. Yeah, so the Restaurant Opportunity Centers and the D.C. One Fair Wage Coalition filed a ballot initiative for uh, for one fair wage to get tipped workers the same minimum wage as everybody else and tips on this top of that. Two years ago? This was, oof, going back to maybe 2014 when the initial, oh, wow. you know, starting, the, 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 the coalition started. But it was filed in 2016 was cleared for ballot access in early 2018, and it was on the ballot on June 19th of 2018. Um, and we won with 56% of the vote um, because D.C. is a very progressive city, and folks understand that people need to make a living wage, that you can't depend on customers' attitudes to feed your families. And it, and it won. Um, but what we saw was that the Restaurant Association did a tremendous job in convincing their workers that this would be bad for them. And it was a real fear. I'm not discounting the fear in those workers. When, when your employer holds a pre-shift on-the-clock meeting, you have to be there. And they're telling you if this measure passes we're going to go out of business and therefore you're not going to have a job. If we have to pay you a full wage, we are going out of business. Or they would say, people are going to know that you make $15 an hour now, so they're not going to tip you. And and both excuses are completely wrong because there are seven states that already have one fair wage. Alaska, um, Washington, Oregon, Montana, Minnesota, California, Nevada, they pay the regular minimum wage with tips on top. And, of course, they have restaurants in those states, right? And, and it's not... And they're thriving. And they're thriving. That's Yeah, they're, they have better wages and workers get better wages and better tips. And restaurants, uh, the restaurant industry is actually growing. You see um, higher sales per capita, higher job growth, higher 
growth in tipped occupations. So this sky is falling argument that, you know, if we have to pay you somehow, we're going out of this. And just the, yet not the DC, you know, you walk around downtown DC in any night of the week and the restaurants are packed. Oh, yeah. There, you can't get a seat at the bar to have a beer. You can hardly get a seat at, at any of the tables every single night. I'm not talking just Saturday and Sunday. I live here. Yeah. They're thriving. They now, are. maybe they're not thriving in all parts of the city, but I was surprised that the city council got scared off by the the tactics of the so, NRA. Yeah, so this is what the NRA did. They... Uh, n- not only did they convince their workers that this would be bad for them, but they that was their cover, right? That's their AstroTurf group. They created this this fake group of restaurant workers that claim to advocate for, uh, you know, keeping the tip system that we have now. Um, and but but really, what was happening? They were hiding behind the workers because the Na- the National Restaurant Association, you know, gives a lot of p- campaign donations. And just to give you an example, Chairman Phil Mendelson, the previous election cycle, um, he got donations from the Restaurant Association restaurant members. And then the election cycle during Initiative 77, we saw that he got 30 times more the amount of donations than the previous time. It's not a coincidence that Initiative 77 was on the ballot, right? And... So what happens is they give money to these elected officials and then they scare workers into advocating against their own interests. And that's the cover that they need. And for for years, the Restaurant Association went after these workplace justice policies and campaigns as the Restaurant Association, as businesses. And people saw through it and they lost over and over and over again. And then somewhere along the line, they said, actually, why don't we have the workers do our dirty job for us? And that's what they did. And that's what they do. And they did it successfully, unfortunately, in the District of Columbia. But like you said, we won a bigger battle in the House. And the the war is not over yet. We need to win the Senate or pass it in the Senate and get a president who's not going to veto it. But it's moving in the right direction. It, it's creating the momentum for other states to introduce one fair wage legislation. In this past state legislative session, we saw almost... I think it was 11 or 12, I want to say 12 states who introduced one fair wage legislation. Now, it didn't it didn't pass in any of the states and or it got maybe to committee and it there there needs to be a lot more groundwork done. But there is momentum. And now the the federal legislation has created a benchmark for what a minimum wage increase should look like. And it includes tipped workers and includes the disabled community and inc- let me stop you and ask about the disability community because we work closely with them and they need consumer advocacy as much or more than anyone else. What what are the rules right now? I don't know the exact rules, but I know that um, the that section of the law is is 14C in the Fair Labor Standards Act, and they're allowed to be paid less from the, by their employer because they have a disability. Because they have a disability. Exactly. Even though some of these workers, most of these workers contribute equally to the household or, you know, they nobody should be treated less just because you have a disability. And, you know, when when folks have a disability, you often require more arrangements around transportation, accommodations, accommodations. there you go, more accommodations 
uh, transportation accommodations, um, even around your house, you know, it, it gets expensive. And so how do we expect folks to, to to thrive in their community if we're saying you you don't deserve to get paid as much as everybody else? What about the argument on youth workers? Okay, uh, that's how I, you know, you hear this. That's how I, Herman Cain, the, uh, the head of the former head of the National uh, Restaurant Association, mm-hmm. that's how I got my start. How else are young people going to get into the workplace if they're expected to be paid like everyone else, even though they don't have the skill set? How do you respond to that? There are a lot of teenagers who have to work to contribute to their family income. And there are a lot of families who depend on the on the kids working to make ends meet. And also, even if parents are able to to hold down, you know, the the finances in the in the family, they might still not be able to afford their kid to, you know, work somewhere and not get paid. Like unpaid internships is another problem, right? Especially for people of color, for people with low uh, income households, you just can't afford to go off and get paid, you know, less or go do a free internship. You you're you have to have the same treatment as everybody else so that you can improve your situation and that you can contribute to and the, your their family. work is the same. Their they may be doing as much or more as anyone else. So uh, exactly. you know why why would we want to pay them less? Mm-hmm. Well, I think your movement has done, which we consider ourselves a part of at the National Consumers League, has done a tremendous job of raising awareness around the country about how tipped workers are treated. People I think are shocked to hear how little they make. Yeah. And how youth workers are on the premise that they don't have the talents mm-hmm. or the the work ethic, so we can pay them less. And then people with disabilities. I mean, that's like, no, we don't do that anymore. Mm-hmm. The Amer- Americans and, with Disabilities Act and farm workers are still farm workers. Out. And you know, we right. we have a long history of working on behalf of farm workers. Yeah. So I think the raising awareness. It like all movements, you know, it's two steps forward, one step back. Mm-hmm. So in D.C., we had a pretty close vote in city council. But a lot of D.C. residents were angry. There was an initiative on the ballot. They still are. And the city council had the gall to say, nope, we're not going to respect the views of the... Do you think they'll ever uh, pay uh, a price at the ballot box? I, I think we're already seeing that. We have a lot of challengers to the council members who are for re-election. And most of the challengers are running on a pro initiative 77 platform. They're there that is one of the reasons why they're running because they don't believe they they, they believe that the, what the council did was wrong. Now they didn't just overturn it's yes, it's horrible that they would overturn the will of the people. But when you look at the vote and you inspect it a little closer, it gets even more disappointing um that yeah to, to say the least, because the way that the the vote broke down was that Ward 7 and 8, with the highest black population and lowest income in the District of Columbia, voted with overwhelmingly with over 60, 60% of yes for Initiative uh, 77. And then where you get into the more white ward, the more affluent ward, the only ward where it lost by a sliver, not even 1%, it was less than 1%, it 
um, was Ward 3. And, you know, that's a Chevy Chase area. That's the, uh, well, not Chevy Chase, the, I guess. Probably the most right, affluent right, exactly. ward in the city. Right. Uh, and so... Um, but your city councilor yeah, so, voted so you, against overturning it, right? right. Mary Che represents right. Ward 3. Her, her, yes, that <laughs> council member, <laughs> council member the, Che, was the one who was from the very beginning said, I am pro one fair wage. I'm behind you all the way. I don't, you know, my ward might have, you know, just narrowly gone on, in the other direction, but I believe in giving workers what they deserve. And so... Um, so, so when the council overturned Initiative 77, they weren't just saying, we don't care what you think. They were saying, we don't care what black workers think. We don't care what our, our, our black constituents think. We don't care what low-income constituents think. And this is exactly who the, this policy was going to benefit. And w- w- voters in, distri- in Ward 7 and 8 recognized that. But unfortunately, the Restaurant Association has more influence over the chairman and those council members who voted to overturn Initiative 77. Um, I want to mention that in several very red states, Arkansas comes to mind, minimum wage referenda on the ballot passed overwhelmingly. It seems to be a, an issue that many Americans no matter their on. their party affiliation, think is a fair issue. It's one of the few issues <laughs> where you yeah. really have uh, a consensus among Republicans and Democrats. Yeah, and I think it's fascinating because our Congress doesn't reflect that, <laughs> unfortunately. Yeah, and and it didn't. It also happened in Maine. In Maine, in 2016, there was a one fair. It was a minimum wage ballot initiative with one fair wage. And that ballot initiative got more votes than Trump and Clinton combined. So people came out and were not voting for president. They didn't care. They wanted to in- you know, an increase in the minimum wage. And that's what draws people to the polls. And, and it's a bipartisan issue. And it's a human issue. People need money to feed their kids. I mean, I, you know. Do you think that's because of self-interest? People who are rushing to the polls are they are themselves benefiting, or is it a general consensus that people are living in poverty because of the minimum wage? I think it's both, but I think it's more so that it's it's a policy that they can they know how it's going to affect them directly, and maybe you know some politicians speak over people's heads sometimes, and they don't know how you know climate change is going to help them when they can't pay the rent this month. They can't focus on climate change. Climate change isn't, you know, it, it, it should. We should get to a, a place where people's basic needs are being covered, are being met, so that we can focus on tackling bigger policy issues um, that are just as existential as a minimum wage. But unfortunately, you know, if, if you can't put a roof over your head, if you can't feed your kids, if you can't go to work, you don't have time to worry about other things. And I think these types of policies of ballot initiatives are, are communicate just that. People see it. People say, uh, uh, you know, can relate to it. And they say, yes, that's going to help me. I will go to the polls for that. Tell us some of the lessons you've learned and for other advocates on a whole range of social justice issues. 
The biggest takeaway in this campaign in particular is that I was floored by the amount of vitriol that came out of some of the workers led by the Restaurant Association against this this ballot initiative and, and one fair wage in general. And it wasn't just, you know, well, my boss is telling me that it's going gonna, it's, it's gonna to cost me my job, so I can't really be in favor of it. It was this deep hatred of the server of color who was working in the regular mom and pop diner because she's not a professional bartender like I am at the Hamilton. I make $30, $40 an hour. We don't need one fair wage. So we would sit down with them and we would say, okay, but what about Quantina, who's working as a server at uh, the grill or who's now delivering pizzas and she's still a tipped worker? Don't you think she deserves to make at least $15 an hour plus tips? Oh, no, she's not a real, she's not a real worker. She doesn't deserve it. They literally would say those things. And so... So it's a real class divide and a in a uh, ethnic and racial divide. You're yeah, pointing to the majority. Yeah, some the majority of these, um, you know, high end uh, bartenders at these high end restaurants, mostly male, were mostly white male. And so you had it. It we expected the restaurant association to come after us. Of course, I didn't expect this sort of Trumpian response to you don't deserve it because you're a woman of color. I do because I'm a white man working at this high-end steakhouse. And, I mean, we effectively communicated that to workers, that, yes, everybody deserves this, and that that proved to be the case at the ballot box. But as an organizer, how do you sit down with these folks and have that discussion and break through, you know, the racism and the classism and I think one of the biggest lessons sexism. learned. Exactly. Sexism. Um, that is one of the biggest lessons learned is in this era of post-Trump where hate crimes are going up or, you know, he's tweeting racist remarks at members of Congress. You have to now be prepared for that kind of bash- backlash. And it really took us by surprise in the beginning. Mm. And have you heard this uh, from others in who era in these uh, battles, the rock people and others? Has this oh yes this issue emerged in other communities? It has. We see it uh, happening now in the state of Michigan, where they collected enough signatures to put not only a minimum wage initiative on the ballot with one fair wage, but also um, paid sick days. So yes, the restaurant association is rallying up their workers to come out against it. But what we saw it, there was the lame duck Republican legislature adopted the ballot initiatives in their entirety as bills and they passed them as law so that during the lame duck session they can gut them because by by passing it as a bill it takes them off the ballot so they didn't want minimum wage and sick days to draw people to the polls because those folks were more likely to vote Democrat than they would Republican. So they feared losing their seats. So they adopted the, the two ballot initiatives. And then when, when it flipped anyway, and they were this, in the lame duck session, I'm sorry, when, you know, after the election, they gutted 
the bills. And so Rock and uh, the the Michigan One Fair Wage Coalition and the Time to Care Coalition are suing the state of Michigan for having done that. And so now we're going through a legal battle in in the state of Michigan. Um, but it's it, there are these attacks at all levels, right? It's a, it's a legal attack. It's the the organizing. It's the policy. And you you really have to think, you know, ten from step, all angles. Ten steps ahead. Right. Ten, so you're now at the National, National Women's, Women's Law, Law Center. Center. Yeah. What's on your agenda? So I am still focusing on one fair wage. And we focus on uh, federal legislation for one fair wage, but also help states pass, you know, local bills. So whatever research they need on how this is a women's justice issue, how this is an issue for women of color. Um, and and we work we work in coalition. We work with members of Congress to to really help them um, know the facts and prepare them to take the right votes. Um, and so we played an important role with the advocacy on the Raise a Wage Act because we were there presenting the issue as a women's rights issue. And answering a lot of questions because we had uh, we had your interview scheduled for and all of a sudden we had to yes. scramble. Well, that was great because we knew that the uh, minimum wage was finally going to come up on the House floor. Exactly. And it's the first time in U.S. history that either chamber of, of Congress votes voted to give tipped workers the same minimum wage as everybody else first time and congratulations thank you and and it's um you know the the reason why we even have a sub minimum wage for tipped workers to begin with is because after emancipation employers demanded the right to hire freed slaves and not pay them anything and just let them work off tips so we saw that practice pick up with the Pullman Train Company, the the Brotherhood of Pullman Porters, you know, came together, formed the the first Black Union. Were they working essentially for tips? The, pul- they pul- were, the yes. Pullman Union. So yeah. they wouldn't. Uh, they they would. Um, you they know, would carry, carry people's, people's bags, bags, and they would be right, and they would serve serve um, the train passengers, and you know, sometimes they would have to babysit people's kids. Or jump and dance, you know, for the pleasure of of the writers, of the white writers, um, and so so the Pullman um, train workers, train porters were, they didn't receive a wage. They were essentially being, you know, given of this is what um, the privilege of working here, and we'll give you working. a tip if you if you do exactly. all the right things, and maybe you won't get tipped at all. But we're not paying you anything. But we're not paying you anything. Mm-hmm. We're doing you a favor just by hiring you. Mm-hmm. And so, the those workers came together and formed the first Black Union, and they fought for their rights. And you know that started in Chicago, and it was great. Restaurant workers never did that. Restaurant workers never came together because it's such a transient workforce. You're always looking for the highest tips. So you might work here for two weeks and then you're going to go somewhere else for another two months and then you might not get enough hours. Um, also, you, restaurants are rough places to work. I mean, you have right, the, there's, the, my bosses uh, were tough to work for. Some of them were downright mean and nasty, not to mention sexist and oh, yeah. sexual harassment. Oh, yeah. Was a part is was a part of the job in the day when I worked in restaurants. So exactly. people would come and go. Like, yeah. you know, every every exactly. two months there'd be a total turnover. Exactly. So it's hard. It's hard to really come together as a workforce when you're not together. 
Um, and when you complain, you know, you, you bring up the very important issue of sexual harassment in the restaurant industry. The the complaints of sexual harassment to the EEOC are, are the highest from the entertainment industry, which in, including you know restaurants. And that is because, again, if you're working for tips and you have to please a customer, the customer is always right. You are going to, you know, unfortunately deal with a lot of inappropriate behavior. Now, if you're able to push back and you complain to your bosses, they're just going to cut your hours because they don't want to deal with a whiny employee or they're going to. Chefs are also can be very mean to wait people. Oh, yes. That's a classic uh, conflict okay. area. If you bring food back and say the customer doesn't like it, unless you've got the support of the boss, yeah. that chefs will go, you know, what the hell's wrong yeah. with it? And, you know, you're complaining and take it back or whatever. Uh, yeah. Depending on, I worked at IHOP. <laughs> it was a rough, rough season. Uh, mm-hmm. And you, you lived in fear of taking a plate back that a customer oh, yeah. said. Uh, uh, wasn't wasn't up to their expectations. It's very hard, and and that subminimum wage system sets up an environment in the restaurant where everybody has control over that woman's take home pay. Because the minute you walk into a restaurant, the host decides where you sit. So if you don't, if the host doesn't like doesn't like you, they're not going to sit a big party at your table or anybody in your area for that matter. And then the customers will tip you, and so they decide how much tip you get, and then. The back of house can delay your food, burn your food, give you dirty dishes, all of that affecting your take-home pay at the end of the shift. And all of those things are out of your control, are completely out of your control. And so... Are you bringing back memories? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Not good ones. Yeah, no, no. <laughs> no. And so if you have the courage to go to your boss and say, you know, these... I, I experienced this today. I didn't make enough money today. The chef didn't want to fix my order you are you the threw problem. a plate at me yeah oh, stuff like no. that used to happen oh yeah food plate yeah you know we um rocks president and co-founder sarojay raman was on a local npr station in uh, oakland a few months ago and she had a caller call in and say i experienced all of those things growing up and i didn't realize there was sexual har- it was sexual harassment until now that i'm listening to you and what i was forced to do was every shift at the beginning of the shift i had to go to the kitchen and expose my breasts to the staff if i wanted my food to come out on time mm-hmm. and if i didn't they would delay my food unbelievable but that doesn't surprise me because i lived in that it's a it was a really uh, stressful environment. Right. And then we see all the stories in the press now with uh, restaurant owners and chefs getting into these sexual harassment scandals and be- being sued. Look at the head of the National Restaurant Association, Herman Cain. <laughs> That's right. It's a That's serial, right. serial accused serial sexual harasser. Exactly. And you have people like him advocating for these policies. And and, and so, yes, it, it creates a horrible environment for that type of harassment. So tell us about the ripple effect of a young woman's experience as a server in a restaurant, and then she goes on to her next job. One in two people in this country will work at a restaurant at some point in their lives. And when you're, it's usually the entrance to the workforce. So when you're 16, 17, 18 years old, it's your first job. And as a young woman, if you're sexually harassed, 
two times more than your colleagues and your friends. It, and it, it sets up what is appropriate. The, in, the restaurant industry um, is setting up what's the, the standard, a really horrible high bar for what's appropriate behavior. So then when you move on to other industries, if you do, and something happens in that industry, you're less likely to report it because it's never as bad as it was in the restaurant. And so you'll always be comparing that first job or, you know, your, your later experiences to that first job. But it happens to be the industry that has the highest rates of sexual harassment. So that's really something we have to work on um, as a country and really bring down those rates because, you know, it's, it's no wonder that now we have the Me Too movement and the One Fair Wage picked up steam because of after the Me Too movement. Um, and it really uplifted the issue because women are now empowered to say enough. I, I don't need this. I don't want this. I deserve. I am a restaurant professional and I deserve professional wages. One last question. What's the preferred term? Waiter, waitress or server? You know, it just de- I like server because it's gender neutral. But, you know, it de- depends on the work. It's okay. it's okay to use any of those. <laughs> yeah. Okay. We're out of time. Diana uh, Ramirez, I can't thank you enough for your leadership. You're really inspiring and a change maker. Thank and you. So change has already come about. I know we're going to get we're going to get that uh, one fair wage in DC. Keep working. Uh, right. It's one step back, two steps forward. That's right. And thank you for all that you do for low income workers. Thank you, Sally. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thanks for listening to We Can Do This, a production of the National Consumers League. We Can Do This is a member of the District Productive. If you liked what you heard, make sure to subscribe on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, or your preferred podcast app. And hey, tell your friends about us. We love feedback, so give us a rating or review. You can also talk to us through the National Consumers League's Facebook page or on Twitter at NCL underscore tweets. That's NCL underscore tweets. Still can't get enough? Visit nclnet.org. That's N-C-L-N-E-T dot O-R-G to learn about our rich history in fighting for consumers and workers' rights, our current leadership, our education and advocacy programs, and to discover ways for you to make a difference in the world. Remember, we can do this. Remember, we can do this.